Taking inspiration from this week's episode title, you've been invited to dine at a great banquet with your neighborhood goblinoid host after they won a great victory. You arrive as the festivities are just beginning. The hobgoblins are taking their seats at tables lined up in neat rows, no fork, knife, or tankard out of place. Everyone knows their place. It will likely be an orderly affair. The bugbears seem like they just woke up. They lazily form loose circles around campfires with a leg of beast in one hand and a horn of ale in the other. The goblins have already started a food fight in their area. It's a free-for-all. Each group seems to be enjoying themselves, but the choice is upon you. Who do you sit with? Oh, I am 100% going to sit with the goblins. I am always, I mean, James knows, we were at a wedding this past fall, and I was at the table that heckles. I wasn't allowed to heckle. I had to be at the head table. Yeah, you were in the wedding party, you poor bastard. I had to be appropriate. <laughs> you were not appropriate. You and Dave were just dicking around. So these guys are bugbears. James and Dave were bugbears. They no, were- me and Dave definitely would have gone for the hobgoblin table. We were at the top table following respectful orders and rules. We knew our place to sit at the table. We did that. And you looked bored and angry the whole time. Like That's not wish- part of any set of rules or regulations I was told <laughs> I was just told to be at the head table and not leave it empty. I did my job. Lounging with the bugbears seems uh, like my kind of thing. Just low key, hanging out next to a fire, drinking one hand, food in the other, staying away from the stuffiness of the hobgoblins or the chaos of the goblins is where I'm at. It's a mimic, the round table Dungeons and Dragons discussion where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our conversation on Playable Races. I'm Adam, and with me today are Jeff and James, and this episode is called Goblinoids, an evening with the perfect host. In our conversation about Playable Races in D&D 5th edition, we've already covered three kinds of dwarves, three kinds of halflings, and three kinds of gnomes. We dedicated two episodes to six kinds of elves, assuming you don't split hairs with all the Eladrin, and two episodes to the many variations of Dragonborn. We've done half-elves, half-forks, kobolds, lizard folk, UNT, Dampir, Hexblood, Reborn, and like the 95,000 kinds of humans in the Forgotten Realms. And of course, we dedicated full episodes to Tieflings, Aarakocra, Asimar, Janassi, and Orcs. And you can find all of these episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and dozens of other podcast apps. Or you can jump over to YouTube and dig into the entire playlist called off to the races that we've built there. Now, goblins are relatively popular player characters, but how often do people jump at the opportunity to be one of the other goblinoid options in D&D 5th edition? Today, the panel of Dungeon Masters is going to sit down and look at the pros and cons of playing a goblin, hobgoblin, or bugbear. What are the mechanical strengths? What role-playing opportunities are there? And what classes fit the best? And don't worry, the It's a Mimic podcast is finally going to give the Verdon some love today. So this isn't the only episode we've spent uh, time on discussing goblins on the show. Uh, we ran a quick overview back in episode 22, uh, and then we did deep dives into goblins and bugbears in episode 103, goblin spellcasters in episode 104, and hobgoblins in episode 105. Between those mob mentality episodes, we went into just about every kind of goblin stat block in the Forgotten Realms and what a goblinoid host looks like. We went through the entire host from their religion to their society, all of the lore that is available about them. That is from Volos and Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. 
And uh, it's spread out among those episodes, but we only looked at it from the monster side of things. So today, we're finally going to look at what players can do with them. Goblins have a special place in my heart, so I'm eager to jump into this topic. But before we get started, Jeff and James, what's your favorite goblinoid to use for role-playing as an NPC, and why? Let's uh, let's start with James. Um, as an NPC, to make a useful NPC at least toward the party, whether antagonistic or not, I would probably do a bugbear. Goblins are too much cannon fodder, and I feel like a hobgoblin, especially for a low-level party, would be more scared of the hobgoblin than any NPC interaction they could achieve. But a bugbear feels like it's a challenge for a party, so they'll be nervous but willing to discuss anything the bugbear may bring up. Yeah, bugbears are also going to be, I think, a little bit more stubborn as well. Like, it's a direct puzzle that has to be solved instead of a proper negotiation. You are trying to trying to get past this bully right? Like there's very clearly a conflict with a bugbear um, as opposed to goblins and hobgoblins can be kind of reasoned with a little bit more, I'd say. Jeff, do, as, you, do you have any thoughts? As far as for me, I make extensive use of hobgoblins in my own homebrew world, um, dealing with a world where the presence of humans and elves is significantly diminished. And so I'm using hobgoblins as a foil for orcs um, as kind of a, a natural opposite in the societies that are around. Um, they're far more common in my world than they would be in other places. And I enjoy that. I kind of think of them as similar to like Roman legionnaires in the way I've depicted them myself. Yeah, they tend to either have that Roman legionnaire style or the samurai style. A lot of the art in fifth edition for hobgoblins is very samurai uh, reminiscent, but um, I think traditionally speaking, um, the legionnaires a is a, a better representation of uh, kind of what their society looks like. Now, do you guys like goblinoids? Are they something that you like lean into or is this something that you just kind of shrug at because you've seen it a thousand times? I shrug at it. It's way too tropey. I, I like using them as NPCs. I don't like using them as much as generic monster to throw at a party because of the tropiness. I like making them a more complex problem than the level one go fight some goblins in a bugbear in a cave. Yeah, my yeah. opinion, if you're going to be fighting goblins, it should be like a horde of goblins. You should only see like five to ten goblins as hunting parties for a giant host. Yes, and that's definitely how the lore in 5th edition is kind of built. Um, and we're going to jump into that in just, just a quick second. Like I say, we've covered this in other episodes, but I'll, I'll give some more context just so we have some touchstones to talk about in this episode here. But you guys are right. These guys are tropey as all hell. To the point where even like the casual D&D fan makes jokes about, I'm a little dice goblin and oh, look at my cute, everybody's got a pet goblin in their party. And like, I'm so, oh my God, that cricket, I'm going to murder it. Like five <laughs> episodes ago, five episodes ago, I had a cricket problem and now I have another cricket problem and I'm pissed about it. Anyway, I am going to stop recording around lizards. Anyway, so um, the... Uh, the thing about goblins for players, though, is they do get to be different and special just because players tend to be unique. They're different. They've got um, the player characters have wanderlust or they've got a purpose out in the world. They're not necessarily just sitting there trying to catch chickens like the average goblin does. <laughs> or they're not just bullies in a gang in a back alley like bugbears, right? There's more to them than that, which means we can kind of shrug off the tropes. And while it's maybe a reason why someone would initially look at them it's going to get really old really quickly so that's kind of what the purpose of this episode is about 
is looking at what the mechanics are and then trying to find new and interesting ways to use them that don't lean into those classic stereotypical um, archetypes that we've seen over and over and over again to the point where I just like I, I don't even I don't even care anymore about about goblins or bugbears or hobgoblins um, and I tend not to use them in my campaigns uh, as a general rule uh, I'm all about kobolds or um, I like orcs better than bugbears I like you on tea better than hobgoblin like there's just there's something different however there's a lot of really interesting player opportunities when it comes to these races. So let's look at the societal structure really quickly. Um, and we'll try to move on through this relatively fast. We have hobgoblins, which are the top, they're the most powerful. And it's not that they're the most physically impressive. It's just that they're the most militant. They're the smartest, they're organized, and that organization gives them an edge over bugbears who are larger and tougher, generally speaking. Um, bugbears are the second most powerful and they have a, uh, a propensity to be a little bit of a lazy brutes and they will push goblins around. Now goblins themselves are prolific. There's lots of them and they're sneaky and stealthy and they're crafty. And we all know everything about goblins already because we're, I mean, by the time you're listening to this episode, you know about goblins. So I feel like I don't need to go too in depth about them, but each of them, the goblins, the bugbears, and the hobgoblins are all separate. They live in separate societies and separate groups and gangs away from each other for the most part. They like to keep their distance from each other until the hobgoblins decide it's time to build a host. And it's because the hobgoblins will get a message from Maglubiot, who is the goblin god, and they will decipher a message that says, hey, it's time to build the host. We're going to war. And when that happens, the bugbears and the goblins fall in line. Now, it's not just hobgoblins, bugbears, and goblins. Those are the main three goblinoids. But they are also big on slavery. All of them are, but especially goblins. A lot of goblins will love to enslave beasts and uh, humanoid creatures as well, especially if they're bigger and more powerful than the goblinoids and they've been able to uh, to make them submit to their will. This is where a lot of the evil and the chaos comes from, from goblins. They're usually seen as, as comedy until they start taking slaves, and this is a real issue for them. Um, but we can see that hobgoblins, they run the host, this massive army of goblinoids that have come together from all over the region. Hobgoblins run it. They are the officers in the army. The bugbears are there to keep the goblins and the beasts and the slaves in line, but oftentimes they'll just make the goblins do it. And then the goblins will wield their limited amounts of power over each other or over the beasts and the slaves that they've taken. So when we look at hobgoblins themselves, as I say, they're militant. They can train to become military warlords and generals. There's also a certain kind that becomes assassin monks, and there's those that uh, are arcane wielders of destructive power. They hone their warfaring crafts and they keep the others in line. They're logical, they're methodical, and they're brutal. And they get to the point, most hobgoblins are very matter of fact, but they do recognize honor. They're very much like a what I picture a Klingon is like, where they will, um, they will hold honor and glory above all else. 
there is a right way to do combat and they're not going to res uh, result to or they're not going to resort to sneaky underhanded tactics even if they use an assassin the assassin will have a code bugbears on the other hand are lazy they're brutish and if they're not lazy that means they're probably being a bully they're mean and easy to anger and they lack overall ambition beyond i'm hungry you're annoying me i want to punch something they really do stack up against orcs uh, as far as just kind of how imposing they are, as well as general overall uh, outlook on life. Although orcs are very nuanced and they have very strong religion, bugbears are really greedy, they're selfish, and they are going to murder this cricket. I don't know if you guys can hear it, but I'm going, to, I'm going nuts here. Um, bugbears are they're going to use whatever power they have over others until it becomes too much effort interestingly enough even though they are so big they tend to be very sneaky they've got a lot of stealth going for them and we don't get a whole lot of lore in fifth edition about bugbears specifically they seem to be the goblinoid that wizards gives the least of a shit about because they lean into hobgoblins quite a bit to the point where they will actually break down in volos the actual ranks that hobgoblins can have and goblins are just clearly a wizard's favorite um, because they're in every single one of the adventure paths we know that goblins are crafty they're sneaky they're suspicious and they're scheming they're obsessed with status and they love to see others being miserable if someone else is being miserable that's a misery that wasn't visited down upon them and they revel in it most of the time they are busy harassing someone that they have kidnapped or enslaved um, either for their own entertainment or if they're part of the goblinoid host that's been pulled together, then uh, they're trying to get them to do some sort of physical manual labor. Every once in a while, there'll be a magical, an arcane flare up to one of the goblins, uh, and these are called booyogs. Booyogs can either be like sorcerers where they have just an innate ability. Maybe they or they had a pact with a patron like a warlock does, or maybe they just have a magical item. But whatever it is that gives them magic, this kind of terrifies and awes the other goblins. And booyogs have special places in their ranks. Nobody, none of the other goblins really know what to do with the booyog, but booyogs are very useful to hobgoblins. The other kind of goblin that exists out there is the Nilbog. Now, a Nilbog is worth mentioning in passing. You can go listen to, um, I think it's episode 103, where we really break it down. But a Nilbog is, first of all, is goblin backwards. And the idea here is that when a goblinoid host becomes too serious, when the goblins are not having enough fun, one of them will get possessed by a demon and become a Nilbog, which is just a practical joker with like some magical powers that's just pure chaos which means goblins are inherently built by gods and demons they were crafted and built to be chaotic and evil and really lean into that if they're not both a nilbog pops up so you must be wondering why this is so important and it's because maglubiet who is the one god that they uh that has gone in and wiped out the entire pantheon um He's the last standing god, except for this unnamed trickster god that nobody nobody has any real details about. It's just an unnamed god 
that does this to piss off Magloobiet every once in a while. He creates a Nilbog. Some sources say that he also creates Booyogs as well, but that's not actually in 5th edition lore uh, as we have it now. So when we look at the other races that are out there that goblins uh, interact with, goblins themselves are a little cowardly. They're a little craven, and so they can get taken over relatively quickly and easily by other uh, more brutish and brutal uh, monsters and creatures out there. A lot of the times, if a troll comes across a little group of goblins, they will just take it over. However, the goblins will then try to outsmart the troll and use their cunning and wit to get the troll to do most of the work that they want uh, the troll to do. They don't want to have to do it. And so there's kind of a little bit of a power imbalance. They often like being around stronger creatures, but they also need to be in control of these stronger creatures without taking responsibility or accountability. When we come to 5th edition, we have seen that goblins and goblinoids are really in three different campaign settings. Um, they're on, they're in Ravnica as well, but Ravnica just treats a goblin like a goblin. For the most part, uh, they are in the Forgotten Realms as uh, just kind of the servants and slaves of Maglubiat, who, by the way, when a goblinoid dies, they join Maglubiat's army to fight all of the orcs out there uh, in the afterlife in a never-ending eternal war. It's called the Eternal War. And orcs and goblins are natural enemies. So we have that lore from Forgotten Realms. We also have the Delkir. Um, it, I don't know if you guys know much about Eberron, but the Delkir are a bunch of aberrations um, that took over the plane of Eberron eons ago. And it was actually a goblinoid host that drove them out. And as a result, well, they still don't have a whole lot of organization and a whole lot of, um, uh, a whole lot of respect from other uh, countries that are in Eberron. They do have their own part of the land that is theirs. They have their own empire, which has fallen since the time of the Delkir being driven out. And there are, there's a little bit of a vying for power in there. Their country is called Dargoon, and you should check it out if you're interested at all in Eberron. It shows you what a country run by goblinoids can do, and it removes some of the chaos from the picture. And then when you get into Exandria, um, they, it has a, another radically different backstory here where goblinoids actually come from the Dranasar. And I think I'm saying that right. I don't know much about uh, about Critical Role, but the Dranasar were servants of the gods. And you know how goblins in uh, goblins and bugbears in Fifth Edition aren't necessarily green. They're like a weird off yellow. They're kind of mustard colored. Um, they lead into this in Exandria. So it's Dranasar who are like golden skinned servants of the gods until they rebelled. And there was a god named Bane not to be confused with the Bane from the Forgotten Realms, or I think was Greyhawk originally. We're starting to get everything confused now in 5th edition. But this god, Bane, twisted these Dranasar and cast them out, and they created all of the goblin kin that we know today. So you can see that we come from a place of it being evil, uh, the place of, the, of a lot of chaos. There's a lot of trying to enslave others, and there's a lot of the... Um, the idea of honor is kind of sprinkled in here and there, either the backstories or hobgoblins. It's around, but it's not necessarily something that every single uh, player is going to be able to lean into, depending on how they build their goblinoid character. 
So we have to think about the fact that while it might be fun to be completely chaotic and if you're going to be a goblin sorcerer, for example, and you're going to be a booyog, 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 mm. which is a lot of fun, that's a lot of chaos you're bringing to the table. It's a lot of um, little character moments that are going to seem like fun for you that are going to piss off the other players there. So remember, we don't want to be a problem player. We have to think when we're going to be a goblinoid that we need to work with others. You can be sneaky. You can be brutal. You can be hostile to others, but you should not be pointing those factors, those facets of your character at your party members. I would say that it is your responsibility as a player to come up with a reason very, very earlier in the campaign, session one, maybe session two, have a reason to make an exception for the other players and their NPCs or familiars or mounts or whatever, that these are not going to be the targets, the victims of your uh, chaos, of your brutality, of the hostility that you have for others, depending on what kind of goblinoid you're playing, even if they're an elf. Because goblins and elves just traditionally freaking hate each other. So we've got to lean into the good qualities of goblinoids and, and kind of think about what we can bring to the table and what's going to be fun for us to play. Hobgoblins, like I said, were honorable. They're intelligent. Bugbears are stealthy. They're loyal. And goblins are crafty, sneaky, smart, and curious. You don't have to play it like it's comedy necessarily. But having a little bit of a wanderlust might be something that that speaks to you as a as a player. Guys, do you have any thoughts about any of this before we move on to the different uh, sub races here for the goblinoids? I when I anything, really when I run a session zero, one of the very first things I talk about when I bring up character creation because we do character creation after a session zero when I run a campaign is the same thing I say to everybody and definitely factors in here with the goblinoid races. Well, kind of what you just mentioned, Adam, play a character that wants to be in this group. If your character doesn't want to be in this group, make another one. That applies to everybody, but definitely applies to quote unquote evil races, stereotypically chaotic or difficult races. Figure out a way to make it work. That should be in your mind from the moment you decide that I'm going to play a bugbear. James, do you have any thoughts about this as well? Uh, the, yeah, the general thought of you want to be in this party, but that goes for any race, any character, there's always going to be a player that's antagonistic. So part of that session, session is zero. I always made it, make it be known that you have consequences for your actions, even among players. Like if you piss off all your player, other player characters enough and they kill you off, that's your business. Suddenly you don't have people to play D&D with anymore. Yeah, you no longer have people to play with anymore and your character got killed off in a brutal way just because you pissed them off. That's your business, not mine. Now, you played in an evil campaign with me way back when, James, and we had a whole bunch of new players that were there as well. Uh, and there wasn't necessarily a conversation about keep it all you know, kosher, keep it all working together. There was a little bit of conflict within the party, but it was done well. It was also done between people who can handle it, such as me and Caitlin. We would antagonize each other because we knew it wasn't personal. We knew this is actually how our characters would have played it. Yes, we work together, but we also wanted the leg up on the other one. And it was more about a philosophy of whose God is going to be better than the others at the end of the day. Mine. Uh, and, uh, and it was, 
an interesting kind of one-upmanship without straight sabotaging others. Well, because even at the end of the day, our gods could have technically coexisted at the same power level because we wanted different things. My god wanted people to have nightmares and suffer, and her god wanted people just to suffer. Well, when you suffer, you have nightmares. <laughs> so it would have worked out either way. We both kind of knew it, but we wanted to be the one on top. Jeff, have you ever played an evil campaign or played an evil character? I have not. Are you interested in it at all? I certainly wouldn't turn away from it. I would rather play in an evil campaign with an experienced DM than I would run one at this particular point. As a, as a DM at this particular point in my experience, I just think it sounds like a headache, but I can appreciate other DMs that enjoy doing it. I have to say that I don't know any DM that is willing to, to be my DM in an evil campaign. Um, just from, from getting to play with the idea of an evil campaign, having to come up with enemies for an evil campaign, I was finding myself out eviling the evil characters and trying to figure out how to, how to up stakes and make it. And James is, it made it hard because James is willing to just like, Oh, I don't know, man, burn their face off. Yes. It's a, it's a baby, but I don't care. It's, it's a cute baby. That offends me. Then I'm going to eat it when it's done and maybe poop it out. Like, I was not the one that ate people. That was yeah, Justin's character. That, that's that's right. clear here. Yes, but you also saw it happen and shrug, right? Yeah. <laughs> Someone wants to eat balut. I'm not going to stop them eating like a duck fetus, but I'm not going to do it myself. I'm not going to poo-poo other people's culture. I'm not that evil, Adam. Thank you. <laughs> uh, um, all right. Well, do we want to jump into uh, into these different... Uh, sub goblinoids then um let's roll initiative here one thing hold on before we do is i gotta say some of this stuff has changed uh since the mordenkainen's monsters of uh the multiverse have come out or sorry mordenkainen presents monsters of the multiverse so it's come out and it's changed little details here we're gonna go based off of bolos and mordenkainen's and then mention the changes afterwards uh, for anybody that's wondering here, but there have been some significant changes. So let's grab our dice and let's roll and see who's going to go in what order. 11. Uh, seven. Oh, why did I have to roll a natural 20 at the beginning? <laughs> now you're going first, Jeff. That's all right. Let's see. So bugbears in fifth edition, particularly Forgotten Realms bugbears, are the source of many tales told to disobedient children. They are the boogeymen for a lot of people in this world tales that say that they sneak up on you in the dark at night and strangle you tales that say they'll cut off your head and use it to manipulate all the people that you love in your life um i wouldn't say that they necessarily have a distinct fondness for child meat at least not in this edition but many of the tales are based on actual things that these creatures have done they are ferocious hunters. They rely on their deceptively stealthy abilities, light feet, and brute strength. But once their work is done, they're known to go to great lengths to avoid hard labor. They will happily use the same stealthiness they use to hunt to sneak away from whatever job a hobgoblin warlord thought up for them to do. With a very quick, brief perusal of some second edition lore, they pointed out that in the past... Female hobgoblins almost never fought, but when they did, they used the stat block of a hobgoblin, which I thought was very interesting. Um, thank goodness for progress. Even before the most recent and controversial to some changes to 5th edition lore, 
they seem to have been pushed in a somewhat less bestial direction and a little bit more humanoid, a little bit more uh, person rather than a force of nature. Um, I'm about it. I'm okay with it. The bugbear is an object of fear for misbehaving children is a direct draw from uh, medieval English, English mythology as well. Uh, bugbears are tall and powerful. They stand six to eight feet tall. And with their shaggy fur and long pointed ears and teeth, they cut a pretty intimidating figure. Bugbears have a strong reputation for both their laziness and for their ferocity. They are primarily nocturnal and are known to stalk their targets using basic tactics to complete whatever their goal is, but also have strong survival instincts. A bugbear is unlikely to be goaded into a losing battle easily. And when you put all these things together, uh, and know that what people say about a person isn't always the full story. I like to imagine that at least some of the legendary laziness of shir and shirking of work that bugbears are known for comes from them being woken up during the day when they'd rather be asleep. If you tried to get me out of bed at 1 a.m. to chase somebody down and hunt them or build hobgoblin fortifications, I'm pretty unlikely to want to be all in. Uh, if I can't get out of it completely, I'm likely to want to plow head through until I can go back to bed, draw whatever that from that what you want. Um, I kind of like thought that if you catch them at the right time, they're a little more inclined to work, say the middle of the night versus the hobgoblins constantly wanting them to work when the sun's up. As far as mechanics of what makes a bugbear play char uh, player character. For the ability score improvement, as of Volos, bugbears get plus two to strength and plus one to dexterity. Knowing what we know of them, this fits pretty well. Their ability to sneak up on the town guards, because it always seems to be the town guards players pick on, knock them over the heads and drag them away before the alarm is raised. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty cool with that. Uh, as far as age, they mature quicker than humans do, coming of age at 16 years old. I've known a few 16-year-olds. Imagine someone with the life experience of a 16-year-old and the build of a professional hockey or NFL player. Bugbears tend to live to about 80, and I can't help but wonder how many bugbears end up with CTE in their old age. <laughs> oh, that's sad. Yeah. <laughs> as i mentioned before they range from six to eight feet tall in adulthood and weigh 250 to 350 pounds that's roughly 115 to 160 kilograms for my neighbors in kanakistan thank you yeah bugbears occupy the top end of the medium size range they're they're big dudes uh as far as speed goes as we will learn soon bugbears seem to have longer arms than legs their walking speed is 30 feet their dark vision is the standard 60 feet that almost every other playable race gets. Nothing out of the ordinary here. But those long arms I mentioned, melee attacks on your turn have an extra five feet of reach. I find it interesting that this would seem like you can't use this extra reach on a reaction opportunity attack. Yeah, that that sounds, uh, that's how I'd, how I'd run it. That's Which is written. unusual, I think, to have it written that way. Uh, it means it doesn't work for sentinel attacks, which is kind of interesting. And unfortunate. You'd hope that it would. I would let it work for that, but I'm not every DM, so whatever. Uh, they have the powerful build trait, which is our concession for making them medium and not large. Bugbears count as one size larger for carrying capacity, as well as the weight that you can push, pull, drag, and lift. Does this mean that an elf can use a bugbear as a mount? Um, I mean, I'm not going to kink shame. <laughs> Uh, maybe that's where all the hobgoblins came from. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, bugbears are legendarily sneaky. They have proficiency with stealth 
And it really wouldn't make sense for them not to have it, considering all the lore about sneaky bugbears. In addition to that, they have a surprise attack feature. When you hit a surprised creature with an attack on the first turn in combat, you do an additional 2d6 of damage. You can do this one time per combat encounter. Or stack up nicely with a rogue's assassination. Or the Gloomstalker as well. Yeah, I mean, that's really... I like that it is going to have... um, uh, some synergy it's going to compound with with those if you were to have an assassin gloom stalker mm-hmm. bugbear you are just deadly in round one of combat right yeah you can end most fights in round one yeah especially if you take the alert feat fun stuff so as far as languages the last statistical bit they get common and goblin simple straightforward makes sense if you want more languages choose your class or background wisely all right well now they changed a couple of things from the uh, Monsters of the Multiverse here. And the first thing that they changed that we need to point out, which is just absolutely bizarre, is they've changed the origin story of the goblins. Goblinoids now were originally from the Feywild. They were driven from the Feywild when Maglubiot got up to all of his shenanigans and murdered their entire pantheon and took over. There's still a couple of gods left, but they're gods that he finds useful and that he definitely has dominion over um Magubliot is incredibly evil um and so he has twisted the goblinoids to be their uh current selves what this did mechanically is it gave every goblinoid fey ancestry which means you have advantage uh on saving throws that you make to avoid or end the charmed condition on yourself so bugbears get that now charming a bugbear which was very much something you could do before and a great tactic against them is not going to be half as effective now because they have advantage on that save. The next thing is sneaky. On top of their stealth proficiency, they can now move through and stop in a space large enough to fit a small creature without squeezing. So they can't share it with the small creature, but if it is a small space that a small creature would be in, they are able to get in there just fine. So they're going to be able to hide in a cabinet even though they're these huge, well, not huge, huge, but these gigantic humanoids. That I kind of like more so than the first one. This one I kind of like because it fits more with the mythology of them being boogeymen. Yeah. Um, James, I I think there should be more conditional on the first one. Like they have disadvantage against others of their species. So a higher up can rule over them easier. And then they have advantage against one humanoid type of species, or they have it against one humanoid. I don't think they should have it against everyone. I just straight up don't like goblinoids with the ancestry, full stop. It feels weird to me, and I dislike it as well, just thematically. You know, they, um, they also get one more thing. Now, that, that surprise attack, how did that work, Jeff? Can you say it again? Uh, basically, when you hit a creature that is surprised with an attack on the first turn in combat, first round turn i don't remember the specificity you add 2d6 damage to the attack hold on i'm bringing it up right now so i can take a look at it yep i'm finding it if you surprise a creature and hit it with an attack on your first turn in combat the attack deals an extra 2d6 damage to it you can use the straight only once per combat so it's this is reworked it's reworded to streamline it a little bit in the multiverse uh in the monsters of the multiverse so it's still called surprise attack and it is the trait now says you now deal 1d6 extra damage whenever you attack a creature who has not taken their first turn in combat 
So this just makes it a little bit more straightforward so that DMs aren't scrambling to figure out what the surprise rules are. Because yeah. that, that's the same thing. It's just reworded. So if you hit a creature with an attack roll and it hasn't taken its turn yet in the current combat, extra 2d6. No, this makes it even easier. Because with the original rule is you either had to be the first to attack from a hidden position or that person you're attacking, maybe in the fourth person in the room, may not have known you were there. They had to not know you exist. This one is if they haven't gone yet, you can do it. So yeah. if your party's able to neutralize their turn every round, you can go around just wiping people out with an extra D6, especially and, as an assassin. And that doesn't have the ones per combat stipulation yeah, anymore? Just, if they don't haven't gone, you can go. And if you can stop their turn every round, you can go. Yeah, if they haven't taken their turn yet in current combat. Also, if reinforcements are called in, you can use it. Yeah, if they haven't taken a turn in combat. So if you can stop that turn somehow, and there's ways to do it throughout D&D, you've now officially been able just to add a D6 every single time, no matter Sud what class you are. Suddenly a bugbear monk just got way more interesting. Yes. Yeah, also, you know... That's 5d6 potentially more damage. You and it's 1d6 to attack, so you could be a wizard at the very back throwing your magic missile at d4, yeah. and even a d6 on that. As long as that turn doesn't occur, you can throw a d6 additional each round for auto-hitting spells. 2d6. 2d6. I thought the new one was 1d6. The old one was 2d6. No, yeah, no, it's still 2d6. So okay, that's... so yeah, 2d6 on auto-hitting spells as long as they haven't gone. Well, frankly, it's 2d6 on, on any damage um, because... Well, yes, but an auto-hit is, I'm saying, you're not even rolling and have a chance of missing. You're guaranteeing 2d6 and 1d4 every single round if you can stop that turn somehow. Which means you now get into the semantics also of what hitting something with an attack means with regard to spells that yes. auto-hit or, or force saving throws. Well, it says specifically in the wording, if you hit a creature with an attack roll. Imp right. Okay, oh, so, so it says it attack roll on the hit, updated but... one? Yeah, this is the updated one, right? Gotcha. So so they have removed um, spell save, like uh, doing damage with the fireball. This won't stack. And magic missile, sorry, James, that was the one. Firebolt would have been a, a yeah. better example. Well, I was talking an auto hit because you didn't. I didn't hear you say at the very least. Yeah. Right? It was an attack roll. Yeah, so that's one of those things that's going to be a disappointment to people who try to use it the first time and the DM goes, no, 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 no. But even then, stopping their turn, you have 2d6 for every attack roll. Oh, I still find it much it, worse off than the original. You find it worse off than the original? Yeah, I find the original, you had to be a sneaky bugbear to get it. You had to be either in stealth or unknown to the person you're attacking. You can only do it the first round of combat, the first time. So you get that additional hit where you may be able to get one of the four guards down before you thought you could as a party. Now, as long as you can waylay their turn, through a paralyze, a freeze, whatever, a stun, then you can continue to throw additional D6. It throws off action economy, if you ask me. I think that it is, it does throw off action economy. That seems to be the thing that, that Wizards is playing with more and more and more as we start to see these subclasses uh, come out. They realize that the proficiency modifier and action economy were two things that were being underutilized uh, and it's giving them things to play with now. We're starting to see monster stat blocks incorporate little kerfuckeries that apply to these um, more as things are coming out. The subclasses are messing with it more. So I'm not surprised that the bugbear gets this little tweak as well, especially because the bugbear was, it, it doesn't inspire me compared to some of the others, like mechanically speaking. It's good, but if it's I'm not playing a rogue, I'm no better though. 
Sorry? For me, this doesn't give it any real mechanical value that you can't pull something greater out of one of the other subclasses. I just, I don't like all these minute little, let's give this person a bit more power because we didn't think they had it. But now someone else who's not playing a reworked evil race is now out because they're not playing a reworked evil race. Well, I, I guess that's kind of the point then too, is if you're going to be leaning on the monsters of the multiverse, you need to do it across the board for everybody, right? You can't just pick and choose and have some people use it and some people not use it. Which then limits your character count and what's the point of expanding unless you stick with the regular player's handbook ones if we're going to limit people to one book. Like this is my whole issue with these minute updates to power up one class, but not another or another race. Yeah, some of them got power-ups and some of them got power-downs. Um, and honestly, I don't mind this. If I'm looking at it from face value, because they're retiring. Volos and, and Tome of Foes are out, right? Like, the you will still be able to buy a couple of uh, physical editions of it for a little while, but it's getting retired on D&D Beyond, right? You are not going to have access to it here uh, pretty quickly unless you've bought it ahead of time, which... By the time you're listening to this episode, that window has closed. If you haven't bought it already, that legacy content is not available for you. So uh, I think what they're doing here is they're kind of banking on the fact that three or four years from now, everyone will be using these stat blocks instead. So I agree with you. I would rather just be in the player's handbook. Um, I don't like going back and retweaking things. Um, although I'm glad that some things like the Triton get dark vision now because that was a little insane before. But this felt unnecessary. However, more powerful and definitely the thing that I would want if I was going to be a bugbear player. So There's I better guess ways to do it. And oh, well, sorry, go ahead, Jeff. I was going to say, particularly with the fact that we know an edition update of some kind is on the horizon in about a year and a half. There's a difference between an errata and a rework. To errata something minor to change something that was clearly an oversight like Tritons and Dark Vision is different then reworking something that's going to get reworked again whenever the next phase of D&D comes out in 2024. I wonder if it is, because they say that it's supposed to be uh, backwards compatible. Whatever the next thing that comes out, it may just be streamlining of, uh, of rule sets and retweaking things so that we can see what the proficiency modifier is in stat blocks but then why not do it then rather than this slow trip if you follow if you've already said we're going to have a major update at this point that's going to be backwards compatible do you really need to be dicking with it constantly all the way up until that date or you just like decide are you going to make constant revisions or are you going to release it in bigger chunks spaced further apart so that potentially it's less confusing for players? I agree 100% that they should not do it this method. Let me state that right off the bat. Now that I've said that, let me justify why they're doing it. And that is book sales. They have given us consistently, all right, so here's me getting up in my soapbox. They don't give us good lore. They don't give us interesting monsters. And they are consistently retweaking and adding subclasses and changing bits and pieces and if you've got the blade singing wizard from sword coast that's different than the blade singing wizard from tashes and they're doing reprints and updates and they're changing it and changing it and changing it and i think that the reason for that is twofold one money and two they're trying to provide enough content without succumbing to the bloat of previous edition uh, previous editions in previous editions Every new book was just brand new shit. 
oh, hey, you're stealthy. This stealthy handbook gives you 900 more rules about stealth. And then in four years from now, when somebody releases another Eberron sequel, it'll have a new kind of stealth thing that has synergy with that over there. And now it all spirals out of control and you're min-maxing like crazy. Instead, they're trying to keep the, the battlefield even for everybody, right? And that is, I think, a problem because this isn't like it's a video game where you can just release a new uh, patch, a new update. And they're treating it a lot like that. Uh, and when it comes to things like the bugbear, I don't find it egregious. You wait until we talk about kobolds or uh, or Aarakocra or Yuan-T. Like they have, they have fucked those playable race. They've changed a lot. So, um, and we're going to see, they have changed stuff for the other goblinoids here too. It's it's definitely interesting to see how they are they're going about this. I agree with you guys. This is unnecessary, but it's what we have. And it's going to be the new standard. There's a better way to do it though. Because if they're doing it that way, it means they know the math. They know the math of what a character, a playable character can do and can't do. Give us the damn equation. Say it's a value of two plus to have dark vision. And it's a value of that. Like we already are doing math for our character builds. Open it up more at this point. Yeah. Open it up more. Give a DM book of this is how we build player characters. If you want your PCs to play one of the old characters or something that's not out there, here's what we go through for lore. Here's how we add up stats to make it even with everyone. Here's the number we're aiming for. Yeah, even if it's not necessarily the breaking down of math and whatnot, if you were to say, hey, look, when you have aggressive and rampage and fey ancestry and powerful build, pick two of these three. In the next section, you have uh, languages. Well, yeah, that's what I mean by yeah, math. Yeah, so, so there's math in there is a sitter word. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's, I don't mind them. I would want them to do that, but remember, the moment they do that, then we can homebrew our own stuff because it's built that way, and then they can't release new content because what are they going to do? Give us a Loxodon that we've never seen before with slightly different stats? No, we're already building our own shit anyway. No, right? that they, allows them to make more lore. Why yes. is, At this point, like the best idea for them is stop making playable characters, give us the math to do it. And give us a website like D&D Beyond that has, once you've uploaded it, we're able to reuse these stats. We're able to say, this is an enemy you can now fight. Why not? It gives them people more access to creativity. It allows them to focus solely on lore and worlds and expansion, as opposed yeah. to minute, oh, this bugbear needs to be a little more sneaky. We'll give him a bit more sneak power. The problem with that is that the vast majority of the income that they get is from players wanting to buy stuff for players and lore is for DMs and DMs are a fraction of their buying base. Yeah, uh, and look, if I can be completely honest, fifth edition, the modules themselves, the way they're laid out are trash compared to others, um, other editions and other games. It is damned hard for them to write this stuff in the first place. I would love to get textbooks of this of the lore, that'd be great. I am 100% that demographic. I agree with James, but I also understand where Jeff is coming from on this. It's about sales. And at the end, they need to get players to buy over and over and over and over and over again. And that's the thing. None of the players I play with buy. Only the DMs I know buy. Which I is... haven't, I've had one player group all pitch in on one module. They buy models. They buy other things related to D&D like dice. They don't buy books. Yeah, and if they do, they're buying it on D&D Beyond, 
and they're but they're doing it because they want to get this subclass which so, you can buy those individually now yes you always could on dnd beyond anyway oh, could yeah. you? they've had a la carte buying on dnd beyond for quite a long time nobody well, uses it and they don't advertise that it's there but it's there and it's been there well if you, okay. want, if you want to buy one spell for your character sheet they will let you do that which i mean that makes sense i get it that drives me nuts uh, having an incomplete okay you know what i'm gonna <laughs> we're, we're so far off topic and we're starting to get into my my so collector shit so back as to far as <laughs> as far as insights i might have about role-playing the brace of bugbear <laughs> Just as I advise for any race you choose, particularly with more, you know, quote unquote, evil or bestial or whatever word you want to use these days, uh, think about whether or not you're playing the race to type. Does your bugbear behave like a typical bugbear, focusing on hit and run tactics, stealth and brute force? Is your bugbear an outsider that's a nerd and got picked on by the other bugbears as a whelp? A bugbear druid might use their stealth and strength differently than a bugbear rogue would. Think about that kind of stuff. How do the skills of this race factor into what you're doing with the character? Is your bugbear a morning person? Are they cranky if everyone always wants them to travel by daylight? Um, tiny anecdote. As a teenager, when I rode BMX, I rode with a guy who was extremely lazy, but he was always the fastest on the ride from place to place. His stated reason was always, the sooner I get there, the sooner I can sit down. And I feel like that mentality is something that would be very common among bugbears. A lot of the reason for their ferocity and their, you know, brutality is because if I just get it over with, I can go back to the campfire. So, you know, try to work how the typical bugbear behaves into whatever you're trying to do with your character build. As far as um, combat insight, um, unlike a lot of other brute races, I would embrace the knowledge of when to run away as a bugbear. Um, hit fast from stealth, hit hard, know when you're outmatched, and get the fuck out. They, it, it's stated multiple times in the lore that bugbears don't stand and fight a losing battle. And that's something that this podcast has harped on a lot with almost every creature that you fight that's not undead or a fiend or what have you. But bugbears in particular, it is called out in the lore. If they sense they're losing the fight, they run away. So it might not be the worst thing in the world for your character to be an absolute brute who's also kind of a coward. <laughs> That's funny. I like that. The idea of a cowardly bugbear, you could play to, to great effect as well. It would be really fun with a barbarian that has to psych themselves up to their brutality and their fighting style. They have to work up the anger to get over their fear. And then as soon as the fear takes over, they're out. They're done. Yeah, that, that's cool character choices. As far as differences between, say, Forgotten Realms Bugbear or one from Eberron or Exandria, there really aren't any mechanical changes to speak of for either of those two playable settings. Uh, Eberron, they do have some more defined culture within Corvair, depending on where they come from. They could be barbarian shock troops from Dakan. They could be savage raiders of the Margul. They could be servants of the, the Galdar tribes, or they could just be poor city dwellers living in slums. There are niches that you're given that they can fill, which is something that Forgotten Realms lore doesn't really give you other than in very, very broad strokes. Uh, in Exandria, uh, like other goblinoids, they struggle with the curse of strife imparted to them unwillingly by Bane, uh, one of the betrayer gods, who whispers in their minds in an effort to drive them to commit evil acts. Some, some bugbears within Wildmount are fortunate enough to have been able to have been cleansed of the curse at birth by a druidic order of bugbears that have broken away from Bane's influence. 
Um, there's also mention in the Wild Mountain book that when very traumatic events occur in a bugbear's life, they have an opportunity to break away from the curse of strife, such as being knocked unconscious, being killed, and then resurrected. Um, severely traumatic events may be able to pull you away, but that if you spent your whole life affected by the curse, having that broken as you know a 40-year-old is unlikely to pull you out of your chaotic ways because it's the way you've always been. So more things to think about. There's a path to not being an evil bugbear if you want it, but there's also an environmental effect that all bugbears are born with the curse of strife, except for the handful that are a part of that druidic order, which is kind of interesting. All right. So let's grab dice and roll initiative. So I have some questions. Eight. 13. I got a five. All right. So Jeff, you're up first again. Uh, what's one interesting reason why one of uh, these bugbears would become an adventurer? I like the idea of a bugbear that is tired of being an underling to hobgoblins and uh, just decided to strike out on their own to find their fortune because they're sick of being told what to do. James, do you have anything? A bugbear who's motivated. Motivated by what? Just motivated. Anything. He sees everyone else being a lazy <laughs> fuck around him and he's like, I'm out. Oh, he just has, he's just the Leslie Nope of bugbears from Parks and Rec. He just has got that energy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to lean into it the other way. Like he's, uh, my bugbear is so lazy, but he's got, he's got a little bit of a long-term view on this. He will, he wants to retire at the age of tomorrow, but he needs to set up the ability to never have to worry about money or anything ever again. Let's go adventuring so I can get rich and I can buy the perfect hammock. And then I will never need to get out of it. What kind of insights do you have for players who want to explore role-playing a bugbear? Jeff? Uh, lean into the stereotypes surrounding their lore and decide how they affect your character. Are you going to play into type or against it? As I had already mentioned, um, what do the stereotypes mean for your character and their relationships with other goblinoids or just with people in general? If you're playing the motivated bugbear, are you going to get really irritated when other people call you lazy all the time because bugbears are lazy? So figure out what the stereotypes mean for your character and how it would affect them. James, any ideas? Uh, know what world you're playing with. So talk to your DM about it. Like, will you be per persecuted for being a bugbear? Like, will you, as you show up to town, town guards be ready to fight you because a bugbear is walking into town? Or is it fully accepting, welcoming kumbaya culture where it doesn't even matter you're an evil race? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, each one of these goblinoids that we're talking about today uh, are not necessarily going to be welcome absolutely everywhere, right? Um, especially bugbears, they're sneaky as well. I don't think, I have trouble seeing a bugbear bard. I'm sure it can happen, but I really feel like these guys don't like the limelight. They would rather be on the outside, um, not being the center of attention. And I think that, James, your point there um, kind of supports that as well. Like, they don't want to be kicked out or denied access or anything. Maybe this is part of the reason why they stick to the shadows and have this reputation of being quote unquote lazy is the fact that they're the last one to join into whatever the thing is. They're never going to be the first one to raise their hand and say, yeah, I'll do it because they don't want everybody looking at them. I think the bugbear bard is not an adventurer. They're just the drummer for the little drum circle in their bugbear community. <laughs> the little they drum just, it, it's, it, No, it's like the bugbear, you know, hippie, drummer or acoustic guitar player that just wants to get high and play kumbaya by a campfire 
but he's not an adventurer. He's just, he's motivated to do nothing but play music for his friends while he's stoned. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> all right. In that vein, uh, what <laughs> class or subclass would be a good theme for a bugbear? Uh, I think it's very easy to point a bugbear towards barbarians, fighters, and rogues. Those are the obvious paths based on where their ability uh, scores get pointed and what skills they have. James, any insights? Maybe a druid. Yeah, I can see that, especially Circle of Spores, speaking of getting high. Yeah. That would be fun. Um, I think that you guys are, are circling around the one that was the most natural for me, and that's Ranger. Yeah. I feel like that's too much work. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, what's, uh, what's one creative build that you'd be excited to play as if you're, uh, if you're a bugbear? Is there anything that just like leaps out at you? I had four ideas when I was coming up with my ideas for this last <laughs> night, but I'm only going to beat you over the head with one of them. Sure. Um, Cause like four awesome fun things came to my head. This is, this is why I DM because I can't stop the ideas um, until I have to prep and then I have no ideas. So <laughs> after reading into the Exandrian bugbear lore a little bit, I think it'd be really fun to play a bugbear from Exandria that's, that was born in the Druidic order. That's free from the curse of strife and play a polearm-wielding Oath of the Ancients paladin who's sworn to defend the Druidic Order, as well as having seen the effects that the Bane curse has had on members of his kind, has made an oath to not only defend his group, but also to aid other goblin kin in breaking the curse of strife for themselves. I think that's fantastic. You know, I have not done enough research into Exandria to really be able to talk, in, you know, intelligently about it, but man the more that i hear about it the more that i think that it's probably the second best fleshed out setting that we have so far for that book is really good yeah i don't say that just because i'm a critical role fan i'm gonna have to dig into it i think i mean i love the eberron book and it feels like this is a, a close second yeah i don't know a lot about the lore of it this whole evil race being cursive, like most of them, from what I remember of Exandria, I think I did over orcs as well. They have something similar where as long as they're removed from the culture or whatever it was, there can be good. I personally find that problematic as a person of color. It's like being told, oh, you're smarter than I thought you would be. What's that supposed to mean? Like, did you think my culture, my world, where I come from, it's automatically going to be worse? That's how I take it. I know most people won't, and I know I'm taking a hot take on it, but it bothers me every time I've heard it. It's interesting because I feel like Wizards is heading in that direct, look, there's no way to win this. They never should have no. called it races <laughs> in the first place. No. But but they're heading in that direction where um, bugbears are not inherently lazy. It's their culture. And if you can get away from the culture, it's not a genetic thing. And I'm like, man, you guys got 50% of the way there. Yeah, you're getting halfway there and you're you're not completing it. And I don't know how personally you would get there, well, but that's I've, just the take I get from it. Well, let, let me float this by, I've said this before on the podcast, if this was a science fiction game and this was different aliens that had different... Um, yeah, I've agreed with you. Species. Yeah, and that's how species, the should be. Species from race alone would save a lot of the strife of this. Also, if they would give us the lore about the gods, because every single time we have an evil race, every time a god did it, we have evil gods with evil minions. Mm -hmm. And these evil minions run amok and fuck shit up for everybody else. 
now that they've given us vague gods that are kind of over there, but you don't have to play with them. Don't worry, we won't push religion on you. But then they left these races behind that are evil. It looks like they're saying, okay, inherently it's the races. It isn't, right? Inherently it's the gods. And it is specifically this god, right? This this one. And most of them have personalities and relationships and they're not um, templates or or metaphors for real world gods. Like, I think they just went anti-religion so hard that they fucked themselves on the playable races. I think on that, another step of changing it to species would help, but it's also our disconnect as humans on Earth from religion. Like, we do not have the physical manifestation of being able to cast healing spells from our God. <laughs> like, we don't have physical proof our gods exist. They do. Yes. So, it's understandable a physical god could physically push the people he created to be evil. But in our world, we don't have physical proof of that at the very least. Yeah, so it's we, harder for us to connect it. Yeah, and there may be people listening to this that say, well, wait a minute, I, I know miracles I've seen. I've Okay, yes, I understand that. That's not the debate we're having today. Just because you saw the Virgin Mary in your toast doesn't mean that, you know. Yeah, that... that some guy 2000 years ago <laughs> died for your sins oh and again i'm not the i don't i know exactly how both of you feel about this this concept so <laughs> we're being steering, careful with it too yes yeah. so we're steering clear of it but i will say this there's a whole there's a big difference but uh in faith and i would even say that in dungeons and dragons the faith of clerics and um and paladins and even like kuatoa and goblins and kobolds and their faith is cheaper than real world faith because they have literally seen their gods. You know, they get a return on it. I don't find right. it as faith. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's it's not faith, you know, capital F, the way that we right. yeah. in the world. So again, again, that could have been an out that wizards used and they didn't. Yeah, I, like the difference between a cleric and a warlock getting magic, I find just the uh, directionality of their gods. It's semantics. Yeah, almost. it's entirely yeah. semantics. The, the warlock's patron wants their soul because they're evil. The cleric's uh, patron doesn't because it doesn't care. It knows it gets it in death. So it's the same <laughs> scenario for me. It's yeah. just a different means of achieving it. And I think ultimately a lot of what has become such conflict over deities and races and racial ties to deities and racial ties to it like all of this stuff i think i don't necessarily think that the people that initially wrote this lore put anywhere near as much thought into this stuff as modern DD players are no. i think a lot of it was fairly lazy storytelling well we need a bad guy so here's a bad guy the bad guy has a god so there's their god the god yeah. made the bad guy bad so that's just okay let's go Yes, now, it was lazy storytelling done on lazy selling storytelling tropes using lazy stereotypes to and, semantic in a bad guy. Well, and on. now, because our society is demanding us to be a little bit more diligent in examining this stuff, it's revealing these problems that are baked into the lazy origins of a lot of these Everything. issues. All right, hold on. I just got to pause you guys because in defense, I promise we're going to get back to goblinoids here in a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a mimic you never know what you're going to get and apparently you're getting talks about uh game design and theology in this episode adam you're uh, too woke for me um so i would say this i don't think it's lazy game design i think it is uh, early seminal game design that is based off of mythology and very very simple and poorly defined 
um, cultural myths and legends of the time. The, the existence of bugbears themselves, the way that they exist in D&D, which is based on boogeymen, right? And the way that, that they have been... Uh, a bugbear in D&D is not a bugbear in mythology. And there's a lot of that. A gorgon in D&D is not a gorgon in mythology, but Medusas and gorgons are are equal right like like the DD medusa well medusa was a person like they just got all of this lore a little bit wrong they didn't look deep enough and that was fine for the time because we didn't have the internet we didn't have access to huge encyclopedic databases to because be it to... was because it was 13 socially closeted nerds in wisconsin that didn't think they'd ever have to put it in front of the world yeah they never thought they'd have to justify any of it and but on top of that they never had to go any deeper than that. It's the same way that if I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons and somebody says, what's the economy like? I'm like, well, okay, I'm a bad example because I have those answers. Most people be like, I don't know, <laughs> bitch, it works. Next, like it, the, some go, some coins are gold and some are silver. Oh, don't tell me your economy just works without a backup plan. I will break it. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, James, that, that's, a whole other, that's a whole other episode. So, <laughs> um, but like, I will I will give them a little benefit of the doubt. The early designers, the, the Gygax early designers, the early players, they were just playing the stereotype wizard. They were playing the stereotype. Not everyone is J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, they're gamers. They're not fiction writers. Exactly. And so I give them a pass on this. And they did a passably good job. But now we've got literally every week around the world, millions of hours are put into Dungeons & Dragons we're gonna find the holes yeah and like a third of them are with adam pretty much um all right uh i think it, you were talking about a creative build james do you have any creative builds <laughs> um an assassin robe not very creative but I mean, it would it be works. efficient and to the point of what the race and class is kind of a race is kind of designed to do yeah it the synergy is so solid there isn't it um for me uh any sort of uh of class that will specifically kill a cricket um comes to mind because i swear to god uh i want the bugbear monk that's what i'm a lot of fun hey i'm not lazy i'm meditating (laughs) and then he hits you 16 times in three seconds yeah from 10 feet away (laughs) (laughs) it'd be a lot of fun yeah that's that's fun for me um and and i would totally use the i'm not gonna do it you do it i'm meditating Right? As he like cracks a beer and walks away. Hi, everybody. It is 3.30 on a Monday morning, and I have been poking at this damned computer for the last ten and a half hours trying to sort out our technical issues. As I'm sure you noticed, last week, nothing got released. It is the first time in its mimic history that we missed an entire week. We were behind on a couple of giant episodes by the time that I'm recording this as well, but I think I finally got it all figured out, which means that this week we're going to try to catch up, which means you're going to have a full week of It's a Mimic episodes that have all been edited, but could not get uploaded. So we are back on track. Thank you for your patience, and hopefully... We won't be running into any more technical difficulties or delays. And also, if you haven't figured it out, this episode was recorded before the 1D&D announcement, which means a lot of our speculation and questions have been answered since then, 
Uh, but it's still interesting to listen to James and Jeff and I sit here and kind of ponder the future of Dungeons and Dragons. Anyway, let's get back to the episode. Okay, so I'll be covering hobgoblins. They're also part of the goblinoid family from the name, pretty obvious. Are they uh, also often the lord over their family? smaller goblinoid cousins and more ferocious bugbears. They usually rule over all of them. They measure their virtues through strength and uh, martial prowess, caring nothing for the demonstration of skills, cunning, and battle. Sorry, they only care about the demonstration of skills, cunning, and battle. They use a variety of weapons. They care greatly for their weapons, so they're usually well-maintained, well-taken care of. They're good at crafting arms, armor, siege weapons, and other military devices. They're quite apt at war, but they're not the brutal kind. They are very cunning, planning, and meticulous. They're generally ruthless tyrants that are very interested in strategy, victory, glory, their reputation, and dominion over others with their troops in battle. Um, they're very loyal to their own particular legion, but they often battle between other legions unless a very strong uh, hobgoblin comes forth and becomes a warlord over across them all. Um, they also train and raise wolves and ravens as animals to help them out, as well as carnivorous apes to aid them in battle. They, as said, they particularly dislike elves, as most goblinoid creatures tend to do. The hobgoblins have dark orange skin. Uh, their hair ranges from dark red brown to dark gray. Yellow or brown, or sorry, yellow or dark brown eyes with wide mouth, sharp tusks sticking out of their teeth. Male hobgoblins might have large blue or red noses, which symbolize their virtue, virtue, fertility, and power among the goblin kin. So for racial bonuses, you get a plus two in constitution and a plus one intelligence, 30 foot walking speed, dark vision. You have martial training, which provides you two martial weapons of your choice when you create your character, as well as a particular set of light armor. Oh, hobgoblins are very fearful to show weakness in front of their allies. So they very particularly care about what their status is. They're able to read and write goblin and common standard stuff. Inspiration for role play, very similar to what I said to um, Jeff's bugbears. Know the world you're playing in. Are your goblin, hobgoblins accepted? Are they feared? Because they're a hobgoblin, even in worlds they're disliked, because of their rank and status and rumors of them, are they at least let into town as to not cause a band to come crush them? Uh, when you're playing this character, think about strategy, think about spacing, think about how you're able to coordinate with your allies to win a fight as opposed to just diving headfirst and freely attacking plan ahead potentially uh similar to bane's curse of strife from the bugbears that jeff was talking about it's almost word for word the same save from a druidic order some of them some later in life but those who in later in life change generally don't become good because it's a little too late you know that's kind of what i got yeah, there's not a whole lot of difference between um, hobgoblins and bugbears uh, in the different uh, locations like Eberron and Exandria and Forgotten Realms. Like the lore, the Forgotten Realms has the biggest divide between them. Uh, bugbears and hobgoblins have essentially the same lore. We do, however, get a couple of major differences when it comes to the uh, monsters of the multiverse. Uh, again, they get fey ancestry, which is just weird. They also have their martial training trait removed. So the proficiency with two weapons of your choice is just gone. They just don't do it anymore. And I assume that's because who cares? You, you, you pick that shit up. You're going to pick 
it up from a class anyway. Do you really need additional additional weapons? And it's martial weapons too, right? Like chances are good that you're going to be playing a, a martial character. I think the interesting thing about it though, and one of the reasons that I find it, I like it being there is that it says something, if you read between the lines with what we know about Hobgoblin culture and the fact that previously you were proficient with two martial weapons and light armor, it very much feels like a culture that has a mandatory service in the military. These are people that even if you're the cleric, even if you're the wizard, even if you're the bard, at some point in your life, you were taught how to use weapons to defend yourself. Yeah, you went to basic training. Because you were forced to learn how to be a soldier, even if that's not your calling in life. And I kind of like that. That's kind of how I felt about it, too. Yeah, I like it, but I think you can get a lot of that out of flavor. Frankly, if I'm a DM, I'm going to hand it to you anyway. That, yes, you can use a longsword. It just thematically makes sense. Um, The other thing that they get, this one's weird. They get Fae Gift. And they're really leaning in now to the uh, to the Feywild, the Fey ancestry here. You can use the help action as a bonus action, a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus per long rest. At third level, you gain any one of the following benefits when you use help in this way. One is hospitality. So you and the target of your help action each gain, or help bonus action rather, each gain temporary hit points equal to 1d6 plus your proficiency bonus. Or passage, you and the target of your help action or bonus action each get plus 10 feet of walking speed until the start of your next turn. Or spite, until the start of your next turn, the first time the target of your help hits a creature with an attack, that creature has disadvantage on the next attack roll that it makes within the next minute. So it's giving you kind of the opportunity to be more of a general. This really does feel like a lot of um, like Battlemaster-ish kind of shit. Yeah, definitely. Do you guys have any thoughts about this, about adding it to the uh, to the list for the Hobgoblin? I think uh, the fact that they're making it Fey is weird still, but overall, I think it's more interesting than the saving face mechanic. I know. I feel like Fey is just giving them a location of origin. So now we know where all the goblins across the multiverse originated from. So they could have done that anywhere. They chose the Feywild, whatever. I like it, the help action thing, besides the name. I yeah. don't, if you're, it's like giving orders, it's like you're the commander on the field. It shouldn't be called help. It's called Fey Gift, actually, right? But you use, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't make that, yeah, that the name is absolutely yeah. wrong. It's not Even the right flavor. The blurb there, you use the help action as a command order. Yeah. Boom, solved it there with one sentence. We still know we're using as if it's a help action, but it's an order. You're telling someone, you can do this on my behalf. Yeah. Now, the other thing is this saving face. Uh, it's gotten an update. So before, <laughs> um, when you miss with an attack roll or uh, fail an ability check on a saving throw, you gain a bonus to the roll equal to the number of allies you can see within 30 feet of you up to a maximum of five. Once you use the trait, you can't use it again until you finish a short or long rest. They've changed it. It's renamed and, and reflavored, and now it's fortune from the many instead of saving face. And this changes the maximum bonus that you can gain is now just three. And the trait can now be used um, a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus per long rest only. So let me say that again. Instead of a plus five, you can only get a plus three out of it. And 
instead of using it once for short or long rest, you can use it a number of times equal to your proficiency mod uh, modifier. So that is minimum plus two um, times per long rest. So they made it not more or less useful, but they made its use different. Do you think the name change is to potentially remove a, a negative connotation to Asian culture? I don't know about Asian culture, but potentially because they've got the samurai, um, right. the link there, that's kind of where I was thinking. A little bit too on the nose. On the blue oh. nose? <laughs> no, red nose. So I, yeah, I don't know how I, this got a reworking I didn't think it needed. Um, not automatically getting a plus five bonus is big, but only once per rest was, it wasn't, it, it wasn't abused it in the first. More utility. It allows me as a player to say, you know what, for this particular lock pick that I'm not proficient in, but our rogue's unconscious. Right. But our party's staring at me and I had the one who said I could get us out. I'm going to use this bonus, though I would normally wait for something more important in combat because of my plus five. I would rather use that for the critical hit in combat as opposed to get a lock the first time. But I'm willing to use one of my plus threes to get a lock. Yeah, I agree with you. We're definitely going to see it used more often and it's for more, more exploratory reasons. Oh, yes, this so far changes I've heard from the multiverse coming up one. I like this one the best. I agree. It's more flexible. It's more flexible. It makes sense. It kind of doesn't kneecap your character or overpower it. Because a plus three is nothing for what you're doing, especially late levels. But a plus three helps you push your party forward. Yeah. And if the stakes of using it are relatively low, because you could use it up to six times, depending on your level. Yeah. You know, sure. Why not? I'll put it in there. Yeah, I don't mind pumping one or two in certain lesser things because I have six. But if I have one, that's being saved. Yeah. So um, let's roll initiative, guys. I have a question. I have more than one question. One. I got a seven. I think this is the third time since 1230 that I've rolled a natural 20. Jesus, Jeff. All right. I don't want to go first, but the but, dice gods have frowned upon me. Um. Well, what's one interesting reason why one of these hobgoblins would become an adventurer? Hmm. I mean, just going back on the whole honor and saving face thing, I think it'd be interesting to play a disgraced hobgoblin uh, who either did something or something happened to them that has had them outcast from their community that uh, honor demands that you leave your society because you can't, you can't be around anymore and you've just kind of got to find a new place in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to lean into the lore a little bit. Now, hobgoblins do get messages from Maglubiat. I mean, and all of them do, but hobgoblins are very in tune and in touch with these omens that they get. And it could just be something as simple as, he got an omen. Maglubiat said, go there, do that. He woke up one morning and went, oh, shit. All right, bye, everybody. I got a thing to do. This is going to be kind of a gift that I would give to the dungeon master, right? To let them... Uh, kind of have a little bit of agency about why I am adventuring and they can tie that right into the plot. For example, if it's um, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, the reason I'm up here is because I got a prophecy from Maglubiat to stop Oriel from doing shit, right? And so that right there is just a plot hook. It gives the DM the ability to tie it all together. Um, and it also gives you a hell of a lot of purpose to move forward, not just dick about. James, do you have any thoughts? Um, you're sent out to hunt new lands to conquer. Ooh. That's fun. 
Yeah, just that easy, hey? Yeah. We don't have to get super complicated with this, do we? You're going to find some rich, fertile lands to conquer for your whole tribe, and it's really easy as a especially well-liked adventurer to get into expensive, high-end places, know what they have, know their defenses. It's a lot easier to take a place out from the inside than the outside. It would also be a fun bit of information to keep from your fellow players. Oh, yeah, you never tell them that till your war band shows up at the gates and you throw them wide. Yeah. That's something that if I were playing that character, I would get to that point where the warband arrives, hand my character sheet to the DM and say, he's yours now. Yeah, you're going to have some trouble coming back from it. Unless, unless you okay. want to play the, I, I shouldn't have sent that message. Oh, God, my regret. <laughs> uh, you know, I I, I forsake Maglubiet in the name of my party, which is something you can do. And that can oh, be yeah. and dramatic. But you're going to work with your DM for that, I think. Either way, I like it. There's fun to be had there. Absolutely. That was a good one, James. What kind of insights do you have for players who want to role play Hobgoblins? I think that it's easy for people to think of either. And again, if we're leaning into like playing to type um, devoted of Maglubiet, potentially an evil character, to play either evil or honorable. And I think you really should try to figure out how you're going to combine both of those things how you can tread that line of an honorable bad guy so that you can get along with your fellow characters and just so that you can develop what this person would do in different scenarios as an honorable person who ultimately has McGlubiot's best interest in mind. Yeah, the other thing that I'm going to really lean into with the uh, Hobgoblin is I don't think they've got a sense of humor. I have trouble picturing, again, a Hobgoblin bard. I'm sure you can make one, but vicious mockery for an honorable character that that it says right in volos does not insult others you will not suffer insult nor will you give it right so like that right there doesn't doesn't line up cutting words doesn't right doesn't suit me so using that though could be really fun to play the straight man yeah and also let your sword do the talking and get the final point but also remember magic is based on your perception of it so cutting words for a hobgoblin is your sword is not maintained <laughs> which is like anti-humor and would be yeah crazy. but to him that's cutting like you yeah maintain your weapons you don't let them go to poor quality so to him that is an insult but not an insult in the way of i'm giving you offense I'm letting you know your sword's not maintained and you should be ashamed of yourself. You have rust on your helmet, sir. Yeah, like it's not I'm being insulting. I'm telling you, you should be ashamed of yourself. That's actually a really good point and thematically yeah. is on point for Hobgoblins. Shame is a factor. James, do you have a, do you have more for uh, role-playing? You kind of answered it earlier, but... I had something to add on to Jeff said, but I've for, since forgotten what he said, so now... <laughs> <laughs> if it occurs to you jump in um jeff what subclass or class is going to make a good fit for our goblins i think Battlemaster is a natural fit um playing the tactical um mastermind on a battlefield that knows where to put his people and when for greatest effect uh in a fight is Battlemaster through and through i that's the first thing that pops out in my head yeah honestly it's the first thing for me as well but i was thinking about the different kinds of hobgoblin um enemies that you can run into and one of them is called the devastator and the devastators have arcane magic they go off to a secret school where they learn arcane secrets and they come back able to cast some arcane spells uh it's very secretive and it is i mean their intelligence uh they get an intelligence bonus right it's constitution yep, yep. And intelligence 
So I, I would kind of lean into that a little bit. Um, but honestly, it's going to be an evoker. It is going to be, I want to become a devastator, not I want to become a fortune teller, right? They're there to blow shit up, to do as much damage as possible. They may be sneaky. They may have things that are going to be um, tactically useful. For example, the ability to go invisible, maybe they'll pick up the invisibility. However, I don't think they're going to spend a whole lot of time on Goodberry, unless that's something that they can see is going to be strategically advantageous moving forward, right? Like they're they're going to lean into the blowing up and harming others. This is about war. And where everyone else was getting training to wield blades and uh, and wear armor, I was off learning how to create as much uh, havoc and damage as possible through magic instead. James, do you have a class or subclass that stands out to you? Or do you, Adam, some kind of backline caster? Because if you're thinking about it and how their position would be in a proper warband, they wouldn't be front-of-the-line fighters. That'd be goblins and bugbears. They'd be back. So I would want to be able to throw massive spells into the rear of the enemy lines to wipe them out quicker. So sorcerer, yeah, an evoker. Sorcerer, you can extend the length of your spells to potentially get out the enemy commander, so that's where I would lean. I think it's pretty safe to say that we're not going to dig too much into Warlock with these guys. If you are going to be dealing with some sort of uh, entity beyond the scope of mere mortals, it'll be Maglubiot, right? And then you're a cleric. Do you guys have a, a creative build that um, you'd be excited to play besides just the class? Because it's fresh on my mind, I think it'd be interesting from kind of that clinical tactical perspective to play a hobgoblin as a graviturgy wizard who's using not only the racial ability to do the help, fey help, whatever, but use that and the different graviturgy abilities to use your ability to move and reposition and push and pull on people around your allies in battle would be an interesting way to play a hobgoblin as a support caster supporting the front line honestly for me i would want to lean in if i'm going to play a hobgoblin i want to be militant as much as i do like the caster idea that james and i were talking about a moment ago i want to be militant i will be a paladin i will be oath of conquest and i will do this thing i will be the best at it and you will all give me praise for being the best at it for me i'd probably do way of the astral path monk oh that's cool the so um, astral spirit arms so you're already above and beyond everyone else yeah, and what is, they're called Iron Shadows, I believe, is the monk hobgoblins. That's, uh, that's from the, um, I want to say it's Volos, but it might be Morgenkainen's, the Tome of Foes. But yeah, they very much have a monk order, which is all about assassins and whatnot. So that's, that, uh, that's, that fits nicely. I think I heard you say it. Uh, that's the one that gets like the spectral arms, right? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be very interesting. I like that. I think it would fit the mentality and lore of uh, hobgoblins wanting to be higher standing and more prestigious than those around them. Haughty, almost. Yeah, you've got unique glowing arms that you don't have to maintain that piece of armor. It's always in perfect condition. Yeah, I I like that. It's there are a lot of options. Hobgoblin, I think, might be the most um, versatile of the of the goblinoids as far as being able to fit any one of the classes or subclasses. I also feel like it's the one more likely to be welcome, well, not welcomed into a town, but at least let into a town compared to the other races we've talked about today. Yes. Because of their reputation. The reputation and because, yeah, the reputation of that they are an intelligent 
planning crafty studious race that they're not going to just attack someone on a whim but they're going to have a plan oh right. that actually reminds me of what I, what I wanted to add to Jeff's thing he was saying that you need to know your character know your rules like your laws especially if you're playing a lawful evil character know what you are going to do to a certain situation like someone scuffs your boot is that enough of an action for your character to lash out or just get annoyed if someone that's innocent is stabbed beside you, do you help them as your character or do you just move on? Make those rules early in a campaign. So when things come out later, it's not, oh, what am I going to do? It's, I know what my character would do here. Yeah, understand your limits for patience and tolerance and hope to God that you do not end up in a party with a halfling. You'll, you'll probably end up punting it. <laughs> that's just standard practice though. Oh man, can you imagine like a militant hobgoblin with a kobold party member? As long as the kobold followed most orders, I think the hobgoblin would put up with it. Hey, you know, they announced there's going to be Dragonlance material coming. We could put a kender and a hobgoblin together. Makes me wonder. I can't remember if hobgoblins are a thing in Kryn. I have no idea. Anyway, tangent. So you can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and our It's Mimic on Reddit. If you have any questions for us, you can email them to us at info at itsamimic.com. You can send your mailbag questions there, positive reviews, sharing on social media, and word of mouth is how we get our stuff out there, so please do. All right, so let's jump into the last of the Goblinoid races, which happens to be the Goblin. So I don't feel like I have to do a big deep dive into this. Like I say, episode 22, episode 103, 104, and 105 are all about Goblinoids. Um, you can actually catch episode uh, 103 for bugbears specifically, and episode 105, which is just almost entirely hobgoblins. Uh, but there's a lot of goblin stuff in all four of those episodes. You can also get a lot of different perspectives from a lot of people on how goblins interact with the overall host. But ultimately, we know they're small. They're one of the few small-sized uh, creatures that are out there that are playable. They are crafty. They're sneaky. They tend to be highly emotional. Uh, and they tend to hold grudges. Physically speaking, they have kind of a weird, like off yellowy greenish uh, skin tone. They've got large heads and they are uh, fast little critters with long black hair. Sometimes depending on your setting, if you go to uh, Ravnica, they've got Mohawks. If you are in Eberron, they seem to be a little bit calmer uh, and a little bit less kind of wild they tend to live a nearly barbarian lifestyle without relying on the strength they're superstitious they are uh, very suspicious of anybody who might be smarter than them and they are eager to go out and get mine 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 for me 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 they do not want to uh, be the lowest rung on the totem pole but they often end up there and that means that they can hold a grudge and they often like to get revenge when it comes to their uh, stats, you end up with a plus two to dexterity and a plus one to constitution. Uh, and that's because they're hardy little buggers too. A goblin can take a wumpin. And they often do to great comedic effect. Uh, it's very hilarious to watch a goblin get his bell rung. Uh, however, they also don't necessarily fold as easy as, uh, as they may seem. They reach adulthood at the age of eight and they live up to 60 years. So it doesn't take them long to get to their full ability to run around and, and be a little bit crazy. Uh, it also gives you a lot of naive goblins, uh, which 
again, people like to lean into as well. Their alignment is typically neutral evil, according to Volos, and it says they care only for their needs. A few goblins might tend toward good or neutrality, but only rarely. Now, it's interesting to me that this is the first real hint that we got from uh, Wizards of the Coast so early in 5th edition that, yeah, these guys are evil, but they don't have to be. And it's specifically with goblins because they know goblins are the mascots of a lot of campaigns. Like I said before, they're small. They're between three and four feet. They weigh roughly 40 to 80 pounds, and their base walking speed is 30 feet. Again, like everything else, they can see up to 60 feet uh, with dark vision. So they can see in dim light up to 60 feet with their dark vision as if it were bright light, and they can see into darkness as if it was dim light. Again, that means that if it is dark and they can see 60 feet, they still get disadvantage on perception the same way that everything else does. I think a lot of people just kind of skim over that, but you only get dim light and dark vision. That's the best you get. And of course, you don't get to see color, only shades of gray, unless you're a warlock and you get, was it warlocks or tieflings get shades of red? Maybe it's tieflings. Anyway, they also get, sorry? Tieflings. It's tieflings, okay. Uh, They also get Fury of the Small, which is when you damage a creature with an attack or a spell, and it's a size that is larger than yours, you can cause the attack or the spell to deal extra damage to the creature, and it equals your level, all right? So if you're level seven, you're doing seven extra damage. Once you use it, you can't do it again until you finish a short or long rest. Additionally, on top of that, you get Nimble Escape, which means you can take the disengage or hide action as a bonus action on each of your turns. I like this at face value, but I hate that it does not stack nicely with rogues. I feel like goblin rogues, in theory, are a great idea. You're wasting a trait. You're wasting a trait. So um, when it comes to Eberron, it says that goblins are usually neutral. And they tend to look out for themselves, uh, preferably without drawing unwanted attention from larger, more powerful people. When it comes to Exandria, it drops the idea of alignment altogether and just says that they look out for themselves. Other than that, there are no mechanical differences to their traits whatsoever, which means you pretty much know what you're getting into. How friendly is your goblin? Monsters in the Multiverse, however, changes it a little bit. You have this Fey Ancestry again, which gives you advantage on saving throws you make to avoid or end the charmed condition on yourself, which again means you can be charmed, but you're going to shake it off easier. Fury of the Small got changed, whereas before the extra damage equaled your level, now it equals your proficiency modifier. And whereas before you couldn't use it again until after you finish a short or long rest, now you can use it a number of times equal to your proficiency modifier per long rest. So they're changing how this works. It's not as potent. You get to use it more often. How do we feel about that? So theoretically, the let's say let's say the average adventuring day has what two short rests in it, maybe three. That means over the course of the adventuring day, you get to use this three times with a maximum of six damage per time is 18 damage, right? No, oh no, I'm looking, I'm confusing because I'm looking at the old one and thinking of the new one. So with the old one, it's the at you know 20th level, that's 20 times three. So potential for 60 damage. If it's proficiency mod number of times, you're looking at at yeah, I don't. Uh, up to six damage, but you can use it up to your proficiency modifier per day. So at level 20, that's six times per 36. long rest. So six times for six damage. So, yeah, I don't, 
I like the old one better. If you can use it fewer times, but like at higher level, when you use it, it scales fine. Like an extra four damage at level four is still fine. But like, you're actually going to give a shit about it when you're a past level 10 with the old version. Yeah. It, an it, extra six damage doesn't do dick when you're at higher levels, even if you can use it six times. Yeah. It also says that you cannot use it more than once per turn. Which, whatever, it's, it's you're, you know, who, who cares? That's going to be disappointing at low levels when, like, at level five, when you can attack twice. If you decide to be a goblin fighter, oh, you can only use it once. All right. By level 12, you don't give a shit, right? So, um, plus, there's plenty of other things like that that allow you to do extra damage once per turn. So, it's not like it's weird that that one would do it that way, too. That's not the part I have a problem with. No, it's, it's, it feels limited now, doesn't it? It's, it feels nerfed when it, it's not that powerful to begin with. It's powerful enough to be fun. But it's not like it needed to be cut down. James, any thoughts? I agree. I preferred the old one. I'd rather oh, once or twice a day being able to just suck shit out of somebody. It's a combat only thing. It's not like you're rationing it like uh, the Hobgoblin help action. Yeah. Like it's, it, You're only using it for combat. So you save it for when it matters. So let it hit harder. I, I agree 100%. This one, the reason I think that they did this is again, because they're looking at overall, are the playable races balanced against each other? And where you had things like Dragonborn and Asomars and Aarakocras were relatively weak, except for one thing they can do sometimes, which immediately gets overshadowed by shit like the Goblin, who has this Fury of the Small. And Nimble Escape is excellent. Yeah. Being able to, also... dis to disengage as a bonus action is great it at is. every level. Yeah. It also seems like they just have a giant boner for taking things that used to be short rest recharge and making them proficiency number. Like they don't all need to be that. Some of them, it might make sense not to do that. Don't just change all of the things that recharge in the short rest. So, okay. So the next sub addition or addition of, of whatever, are we going to get warlock spell slots recharging a number of times equal to your proficiency modifier? Like, I don't know. It just seems like they've got a boner for this one change and they want to apply it to everything, whether it makes sense or not. In one respect to that, I kind of understand in almost every game I've played, we don't do short rest because most people's stuff recharges on a long rest. So we'll just ration to go through. We generally don't play with a lot of warlocks, so we don't have them bitching and complaining about everything. So that may be just unique to my play. Yeah, you also... Peer pressure your cleric and using the channel divinity more, then they'll want more short rests. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say there are enough things out there that are triggering it. Maybe you guys are min-maxing enough so that you're getting that real powerful stuff right. instead of the moderate stuff that recharges more often. I know that you play a very tactical uh, game, James, so that might just be the nature of your table. But I know my Sunday group with uh, with Megan and Dave and Dan. I'm telling you, they rely on short rests because they get beat to shit. Their hit dice are coveted. So being able to, to regenerate with hit dice is something that they desperately need. But it really makes you think about how you're going to build this goblin. Like it's it's different now. You're not, you're right, it's nerfed. It does not feel as good as it did to be a goblin. Is there an interesting reason you guys could come up with for being a goblin adventurer? Let's roll dice. Well, I got a seven. What'd you get, James? Twelve. Six. All right, James, you're first. It's a good reason for a goblin to go out adventuring. Your whole tribe or group or whatever got wiped out. You're the last goblin left. Yeah. And you got picked up by an adventuring party. Now you're an adventurer. 
honestly, uh, yes, that's as good an answer as any. Goblins are one of the handful ones. They're like halflings, I guess, as well, which for me, just wanderlust. Why are you adventuring? I don't know. What's that? And that's good enough for some goblins. I find them to just be curious. Jeff? I think it could be fun to kind of manipulate their motivation to enslave bigger things to do work for them and turn it around a little bit to have this point of view of, I've convinced all these stupid humans and elves to protect me and uh, help me get food from inns without getting beat up or thrown out. And I'm the one doing the manipulating here. I'm the leader of this group, but I don't tell them that because it makes them feel better about themselves because they're bigger. And just pretend that your group are your subordinates, but you don't tell them that. Uh, That's fun. Yeah, you could be almost like Starscream as well, right? Like you're giving orders, but nobody's going to listen to you. (laughs) Do you guys have any insights for any players that want to role play as a goblin? Don't attack your party with your goblin antics. And there can be quite a few goblin antics that you may definitely want to lean into. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's not even don't attack the party. That's a big part of it. But when the party is trying to get some information out of the bartender, don't jeopardize the, the bartender. party. <laughs> yeah. You're a goblin. I don't think your party is going to be too adverse to killing you. Or you're the damn mascot. And then you can just get away with shit, at which point the players will get annoyed. Right. Goblins can be damned annoying. Jeff, any insights? As far as role playing, play up the size disparity because most i find most dnd groups are all medium characters if there's a small character it's usually one play up the fact that you're half the size of everybody else that you're half the height that you can't see over anything that you need to climb up everything that you hide behind your friends i think it could be very entertaining if you're not beating people over the head with it to pay close attention to the fact that you are half the height of everyone around you. Because more often than not, you're probably the only one in the group that's in that situation. James, do you have a good class or subclass that's going to be a, a good fit for this race? If we're talking good fit, like a ranger or assassin, but a funny class that I would play would be a battle master. <laughs> which, <laughs> which absolutely fits right into what I was just saying about uh being convinced that you are the leader yeah you've got like a five foot sword that's like twice as long as you it drags behind you as you walk so the tip oh. of your sword's always just a little bit bent yep i love it yeah that is that is a lot of fun <laughs> honestly um i'm awesome. gonna say big people around I, i'm gonna say look uh, i don't see a whole lot of wizards a whole lot of goblin wizards don't make sense to me they're not going to study necessarily but if i want to go magic the Booyag, 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 just the wild magic sorcerer, loads of fun. I could also see a goblin artificer. Oh, for sure. Just like tinkering with shit all the time. Well, what happens if I put this spell in it? All right, here, take this, go try it. Tell me if it works. Oh, you blew up. Never mind. That one didn't work, right? Like I, I could be a little bit more chaotic just by handing out bizarre items and infusions left, right, and center and always trying the next thing. It borderlines a little bit on gnome territory because you're a small creature. But just, like feral. Yeah, I think so. Like, <laughs> you, I also just picture goblins are always gnawing on something and just always have like a chicken bone between their teeth, just kind of like working at it, you know, subconsciously as, the, as they're working. Jeff, do you have a favorite class or subclass? Um, I actually like the ranger aspect. Um, I, I definitely appreciate the variety and humor of both Battlemaster and Artificer. But there's just, I think there's something interesting about playing, you know, a ranger goblin who's just an expert tracker 
and does that job very well. They can fit through places that other people can't to keep the trail. I don't know. I like it. Uh, do we have a creative build that you'd be excited to play as this race? The Battle Master. Yeah, you're just going to lean right into it? Yeah. I got to say, I think the one that I'd be most interested in playing is a Goblin Barbarian. I think that the Nimble Escape, the Disengage or Hide really suits that almost stealthy flavor of the Barbarian, as well as the Fury of the Small on top of the Rage thematically suits me well. And the Goblin that's just kind of good-natured and curious until you piss him off, he's a feral little bastard, right? Like when my, if I get a kill in as a Barbarian and the DM asks, how do you want to do it? I, I tore out his jugular with my teeth. Right, I'm just going to get a little bit more feral than normal, and I think it would be a lot of fun to do that. Jeff, do you have a a build you're interested in? As much as I, my initial inclination was also a you know a ranger, but I think a way of shadow monk that's a goblin who just death by a thousand cuts below the knee could be <laughs> a lot of fun. Just punching and kicking and karate chopping, poking people behind the knees, and being really hard to see. Just you know, I can't quite make out where this little fucker is who keeps hitting me in the knees. I think it could be a lot of fun. Just just taking their little dagger out and slicing yep. those Achilles tendons. <laughs> so any final inspirations before we wrap this episode up? I don't really have anything. No, just have fun. You know, find a way to make this fun and not annoying. Honestly, I think we've said everything that needs to be said about Goblinoids between five episodes about them. They're popular, they're fun, and I'm sure there'll be more to say in a future episode as they continue to release things. But uh, as it stands now, it's weird some of the the retuning of the uh, the sub goblinoid races. But again, they're still all very viable options uh, if you're into that specific flavor. And there's there's a, uh, a a simple beauty for each one of them. I could be inspired to play anyone. And someone said you had to be a bugbear or a hobgoblin or a goblin, I'd say, yeah, okay, I can do that. That I can work with. I agree. So I think that's all for our discussion on playable goblinoids in 5th edition. The next time we circle back to discussing playable races, we're going to be heading out to the fringes of society to explore furbolds, goliaths, and tritons. Over the next couple of weeks, though, we're going to be wrapping up our conversation on subclasses that have been re released so far, including the final fighter and the final monk. Thanks for listening to another episode of the It's Amendment podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website, www.itsamemic.com, as well as a store for some sexy merch. We also rely on word of mouth to get news of the podcast out there to the community. So please pass the word to everyone you know that we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Thanks for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. This has been an It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, requests, and questions for our mailbags can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. Okay, so did you guys know that there's also one really bizarre kind of ignored goblinoid that exists in the Forgotten Realms called the Verdan or the Verdan. I'm not quite, I don't listen to Acquisitions Incorporated, but it got published in a book and they're kind of weird. They're kind of neat. They are goblinoids because they used to be goblins and hobgoblins and then some nameless, faceless entity that's kind of like a creator god that travels the multiverse that is a being of pure chaos passed by them a little too close and turned them into a special kind of goblinoid. 
Now you can find these guys in the Acquisitions Incorporated book. They're one of my favorites because they embody the idea of chaos without being disruptive by any means. So let me tell you what, what I mean by that. Yes, they've been infected. Yes, they're in the Forgotten Realms. And yes, it's a small group of goblins. So nobody really knows what they're getting into when they meet a Verden for the first time. They're often mistaken, actually, for small green half-elves because they don't really look like goblinoids. Their skin is like a jade color. They're no longer like red, like a hobgoblin or this weird mustard yellow color of a regular goblin. Instead, they're like a jade green. And their size, the shape of their ears, their skin color, their hair, even their gender can all change drastically throughout their lifespans. And this doesn't have a pattern to it. There's no rhyme or reason. It's that chaos of the fact that they have fundamentally been changed by a crazy like elder god out there. But each mutation is seen by the Verdant as a blessing, which means they don't hate the fact that they're changing. They're embracing it. Traditionally speaking, they're curious. They lean towards a good alignment and they're known for blending into other societies. They've got wanderlust. They're chaotic, but they're not disruptively chaotic. They're just constantly changing physically, which means that they're also changing um, kind of emotionally and mentally as well. Their size technically varies. And I'll explain this in a moment. Um, they normally get a plus two to charisma and a plus one to constitution. Their speed is 30 feet and they reach adulthood at around the age of 24. It's thought that they might live to be nearly 200 years old, but because none of them have died of old age since its original creation, their upper age limits remain kind of subject to speculation. That's right in the rules. Their size starts out similar to goblins. So they range from three to four feet in height. But at some point after reaching maturity, each one gets a sudden growth spurt and they go up like two feet. At first level, you're small, but when you reach fifth level, you are mature enough and bang, sudden growth spurt, you are a medium creature overnight. Which is such a weird thing when you think about the way D&D campaigns pace. Oh yeah, like it's just one day you're you're fighting yeah. a small creature and the <laughs> next day, like just, hey, you know what? Level up during your short rest. Just boom. And, and now, you, does your armor fit? <laughs> and age has nothing to do with it. Yeah. So they also <laughs> have what's called black blood healing. So they have black blood, and it's a sign of their connection to that creature, which is called that which endures. Um, and it uh, boosts the natural healing. So when they roll a one or a two on any hit die that they're spending uh, at the end of a short rest, they can re-roll the die and must use the new roll. They also get limited telepathy. And I think that's because of this weird god as well. You can te telepathically speak to any creature you can see within 30 feet. You don't need to share a language with the creature for it to understand you, but it must be able to understand at least one language. This process of communication is slow and is limited, allowing you to transmit and receive only simple ideas and straightforward concepts. Additionally, on top of that, you're naturally persuasive. Your people's lack of history makes you trustworthy and humble. Nobody knows what to deal with when it comes to you, and you don't have any preconceptions. You have proficiency with the persuasion skill. You also have telepathic insight, which means your mind's connection to the world around you strengthens your will, which gives you advantage on wisdom and charisma saving throws. Huh. Yep. And then finally, you can speak, read, and write common, 
and Goblin, and any additional language of your choice. It typically has some sort of connection to one of the areas or cultures that's been a part of your life, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. This is the only Goblinoid that doesn't get that weird new update about, well, your ability scores can be three of, of this or two of that, or one, and just the do whatever you want. Um, so it is charisma plus two, constitution plus one. Let's uh, roll dice. I want to get your overall impressions before we wrap this episode up. Six. Seven. I got five. Did you get a seven, James? Yeah. <laughs> five, six, seven. All right. James, what do you think? Eh, it's not bad. It's interesting. I don't know if I'd play it, but... Yeah, if if I've played D&D a thousand times, if I'm like Dan and I have <laughs> built a thousand characters, then then yeah, sure. Jeff, what do you think? I honestly had never even looked at these at all. Like, I knew that they existed, but have no knowledge of them whatsoever. I think it's an interesting idea. Again, I'm not 100% sure how much I would use this, but I'm very curious about it nonetheless. I'm and, now, going... and now it's in my head, so it'll probably come out somewhere. <laughs> I'm definitely going to use this in a campaign where you're dealing with a couple of goblins and the goblins have been befriended by the party or whatever, or maybe you've captured one and you've tied it up and you're going to interrogate it tomorrow and you go back and it's a giant green-skinned half-elf looking bald <laughs> motherfucker going, hey guys, something happened. Um, help, my clothes are too tight. I have a wedgie. I, I think if you're using this outside of the Forgotten Realms, it could be a really... Uh this is going ahead a little bit and probably what you're going to ask, but this could be a really interesting Genesis for suddenly manifesting wild magic sorcerer abilities. Yeah. That was going to be the last question I hit before we wrap this episode <laughs> is, uh, is if you're going to make a class or a subclass that changes like this, what, what are you leaning into? Let's roll initiative one more time. This four, Ooh. four natural twenties today. Good thing I'm not playing D and D. My players would be dead. <laughs> I got a 15. What'd you get, James? Two. A two. All right, Jeff. I mean, Wild Magic Sorcerer, I guess. I mean, I actually think it could be really interesting to play this as a bard. Yeah. Um, I don't know entirely what subclass I think would work, but the fact that they're persuasive and people want to trust them and they just like, it feels like there's a certain innocence to them. And adding bard shit on top of that could be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of leaning into the charisma. And I think it's built this way, the charisma and constitution to be a wild magic sorcerer, right? Like it looks like it's built that way. I think I'm going to try to have a great old one warlock with it for that which endures as my as my patron. Okay. Um, and uh being persuasive as a warlock means that. If I decide that I want to be an evil character, that's that can be dangerous. That can be fun. James, do you have any maybe subclass? sorcerer? Sorry, want to get sorcerer, but not share the flavor. I just think it would be fun to be a sorcerer. It's interesting as well when you're thinking about sorcerers in general, and I run into this a lot with some of the races. Is you've got now a double heritage. You've got your crazy weird Verdan heritage, and you also have the draconic or the I was born in a storm and the elementals are in my blood or like there's, there's almost a duality now to the, to the sorcerer character because of the innate nature of their, their backstory. Uh, to add to that, I think playing this as I was a goblin and now I'm this, but apparently I'm also part dragon is very chaotic and weird and could be a lot of fun to play into. So wait a minute, you have draconic ancestries? Like, I don't fucking know. I guess. Look, I've been blowing fire for the last three weeks, and now I'm I'm 
twice as tall. I don't know what's happening. Help. (laughs) Of the so-called quote-unquote evil races, which is your most fun or most interested to play? Jeff, do you have any thoughts? I like Hobgoblins, to be honest, and not just because of this episode. Hobgoblins play a large part in my homebrew world. I'm a fan of the type of orderly militaristic stuff that they can bring to a D&D world if you're creative. I'm all about kobolds. Man, I just can never get enough kobolds. So uh, they are featured like prominently in every single one of my campaigns. And uh, if I have a default small race uh, I go to, it'll, it'll be a kobold. I just find them so useful to be either comedic or just a complete pain in the ass. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a big fan. James, what's uh, what's your favorite? Well, Yanti are obviously my favorite, but I wouldn't mind playing a Gith. Well, Gith Yankee are evil, right? Yeah. The Gith Zarai are, I think, neutral. Something like that. So you like the Gith Yankee better? The, for yeah, the, preferably. Pirates? Yeah, Say what now? Ass pirates? No, no, no. It's a little different. They're, they're astral. You know what? Yes. Ass pirates. Astral pirates. Got it. Yes. You, you do you, Jeff. We don't kink shame. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of information um, that's different between um, Exandria and Eberron when it comes to bugbears. Sorry, guys. you got to give me a minute here. This cricket's killing me. It will not shut up. Okay. I've been listening to you rage about that cricket for four hours now. <laughs> I am, I'm not kidding. The moment I hang up, I'm tearing these tanks apart. I don't know. I like it. What the fuck just happened? What the fuck just happened? I just had a loud noise in my ear and I have no fucking clue why. I think Discord's doing weird shit. My Discord's closed. I think you're getting yelled at. No, it's like a crazy, it wasn't a notification noise. It was like a crazy party noise. I don't know. Closing Discord. Sorry about that. Thanks for listening. Bye.